Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology and Raw. I have on the show today the one and only Dr. Willie James Jennings. Uh, Dr. Jennings is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale University. He's the author of the highly acclaimed book, The Christian Imagination, A Theology, The Theology and Origins of Race. Uh, another book, After Whiteness, which we discussed briefly, um, An Education in Belonging. And the main book we talk about is his commentary on the book of Acts. Uh, it's called Acts, A Commentary, The Revolution of the Intimate. It is a very... <laughs> um, stimulating commentary. I mean, he's so poetic and um, such a beautiful writer, and it comes out in his commentary. Such a thoughtful guy. I wanted him to just help us think through the theology of Acts in this podcast, and that's exactly what he does. Uh, We start with Acts, we linger there for a long time, and then we make some cultural contemporary applications, and then we got into a discussion about uh, race and whiteness and imperialism and so on and so forth toward the end of the podcast, which I thought was very provocative and clarifying in many ways um, with some of these really debated and volatile concepts. So please welcome to the show the for the first time, the one and only Dr. Willie James Jennings. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with Dr. Willie James uh, Jennings, professor at Yale University. And uh, I reached out to Dr. Jennings, it must have been a month and a half ago or so. Um, and I, I described it as kind of a Hail Mary. I'm like, I, you know, I every now and then I'll throw a Hail Mary to some, you know, Ivy League professor. And usually I get maybe crickets or maybe a polite no, you know, every now and then I'll land one. And so I was really excited when you responded back so kindly right away and said, yeah, I'd love to. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> so thanks so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. My pleasure. So I'm holding in my hands uh, one of your books, uh, the Book of Acts. Um, well, it's a commentary on the Book of Acts. I'm blank. Wait, what's the uh, the subtitle is Killer. Um, oh, where did it go? <laughs> I can't even see the subtitle. You know it. Revolution. Intimate, the revolution of the intimate. The revolution of the intimate. And the first line of the commentary says the book of Acts speaks of revolution. Um, can you unpack that a bit? Because the concept of revolution can probably mean different things to different people. Um, and uh, yeah, and in what way is the book of Acts a revolution? And maybe, we, you know, that'll get us going. And I'm sure we can maybe look at some passages and unpack that a bit. Absolutely, Preston. I mean, the, the, the book of Acts is the beginning of the revolution because it is the overturning of the ways in which boundaries and borders have been designed by us to tell us not only who we are, but where we should go. And the book of Acts is um, God's way of overcoming not only the boundaries and borders, but reconstituting for us what it means to be a people striving for a future, mm. redirecting that future toward a new reality of joining. And so it is revolution in the deepest sense of the word. So, you know, uh, for yeah. so many, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, uh, you go, you go ahead. You go, finish your thought. Okay. So, so for so many people, the way in which they imagine their futures are, is tied so inextricably to the the hopes and dreams of their people, of their nation. And so what the Book of Acts shows us is that there is um, a subverting of that hope and that dream 
toward God's life and life with God and a life together with God that is at the heart of this overturning this revolution. So that's that's why yeah. it's called. What are some of the hopes and dreams in the first century that the Book of Acts is trying to maybe reorient or confront or correct? Correct. If that makes well, sense. The, as I said, the book there's there's two there's two kind of realities of dreaming that the Book of Acts is situated right between. There is the dreaming of the empire, the Roman Empire, for its continuing flourishing, and within that dreaming. There are the dreams of those who would be citizens, those who are uh, at the margins but hoping to become citizens, and those who are citizens who are hoping and, and dreaming for the ongoing welfare of the empire. In fact, anyone who becomes a citizen of the empire, of course, hopes for its eternality. They hope that it will never end, it will go on. Hmm. And so there is that dreaming going on of life in the empire and the empire prospering. But then there's also the hope of the diaspora. And what is that hope of Jewish diaspora? Number one, for their ongoing survival. And tied to that ongoing survival is, a, is it rooted in faithfulness. That is faithfulness to the God of Israel. So the dream that it will continue in all its desperate places, all its dispersed places, to be a faithful, a faithful remnant, a, a faithful reality of um, Israel's God, following Torah and doing the will of God, uh, enjoying God's favor, but also the dreaming of the day of the the uprising, if you will, the day in which Israel will no longer have Rome on its neck, no longer seen as, the, as yet a backwater uh, reality of Rome, that it have, will stand as its own people, the, the restored kingdom of David. And that kingdom means independence, self-determination. We, we, we rise, we stand, and we are not subject to any other power because we stand under the power of the one true God. And so these two kinds of dreaming are going on in the book of Acts. But then there is the third dream, if you will, and that is the dream that comes from and through this Jesus of Nazareth, what he dreams, what will be now realized on the other side of death with his resurrection, a dream that will come true with the coming of the Spirit, and that is for the gathering to begin. That, oh, there's, just as you're talking, so many passages are kind of coming into my mind. Um, is Let me start with the second hope, the one of kind of if I can put it, you know, Jewish nationalism or maintaining the purity of the hope in the one true God, is that why there was such consternation over Gentiles coming into the, the, this Jesus movement and why there's such a lengthy portion of the book of Acts? I mean, really, I mean, it's kind of everywhere, but especially chapters 10 to 15, you know, did, did the Jews see this inf infiltration, I'm using quotes here, of, of Gentiles as kind of a... a, a um, a watering down of that Jewish hope? Um, yes, yeah. And this is why we, we, we don't do the Book of Acts and our reading of the Book of Acts, the, the um, proper honor and service it deserves, if we run too quickly past what you're just describing, that is the, the angst of loss, the angst of assimilation. Hmm. You know, it's, it's terrible to too quickly paint um, the Jewish, uh, not only Jewish believers, but, but paint 
um, the Jews of Diaspora in a negative light in the book of Acts as simply, you know, violent, violent evildoers. That is not the case. Because hmm. remember, let's come back to Acts 1. Preston, come back to Acts 1. Acts 1, the disciples are looking at the resurrected Jesus. They're looking at one who has overcome death. And what we often forget, it's not just that they, they're looking at one who's overcome death. They're looking at one who's overcome the violence mm -hmm. of the empire. Mm -hmm. The empire's number one weapon to create order, violence. And mm -hmm. they're looking at one who's overcome that weapon. In fact, one who has now seized the power of that weapon, the weapon of death and the threat of death. And so they ask the they ask the right question, though it's a tragic question. They ask the question of Jesus. Okay, you have risen with power. Now, when will we take over? When will you restore the kingdom of Israel? When are we going to get these Romans off our neck and, in fact, put our boot on their neck? When will we have power? And so Jesus answers them and says, okay, you will have power. Go to, go to Jerusalem and wait. You're going to get power. Like, all right, here we go, here we go. <laughs> That's true. They did get power. But it's not power over people. It's power for people. Hmm. The speaking of tongues brings them into the deepest realities of peoples and of connection and of intimacy, of space, of life together. They are speaking the mother tongues of people. Mm -hmm. Not just kind of the formal language, but the language we speak at home when we are in our safe and comfortable and normal place. They're speaking that language. And so the, 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 all these Jews from all over the world who are for part of different peoples are saying to, saying, asking the crucial question, where did they learn not just our language, but my language, my language, the way I speak? And so here what we're seeing already it's the transgressing of God and the turning of the desire of these, these of Israel toward a new reality of life together. Now, so when we come to the passages you mentioned, the chapters you mentioned, things have picked up. And so now what is being perceived is a threat, mm. is a threat to the faithfulness, is a threat to the consistency and identity of what it means to be the people of God, of what it means to be a part of the Jewish diaspora, and a fear that what they had long suspected, what they had feared, what, what was, about to become, was about to become a reality. What is that? Mm -hmm. That here they are in the sea of Gentiles, and here is one or a number of a, a few who are about to open the spigots open the doors and let us be flooded with Gentiles into our most sacred spaces, into our most intimate spaces, Gentiles who, who are already outnumber us. Mm -hmm. And if we open the doors in the way they're talking, they will simply wipe us out. They will, we will be utterly assimilated and lost. And so what is at stake is our very life, our very identity. So what should we do? These men are threats. These believers, men and women, are threats to us. And so what does that mean? It means early in the book of Acts, there are people who take a vow. They take a vow that they will not eat. Mm -hmm. they, will not, they will not rest until they eradicate this threat. Saul says, I will eradicate this threat. I will stand here and make sure these people die because it's an issue of 
either they die or we die. Mm. And I will not allow us to die. Mm. So th- that, that dynamic is rolling through the book of Acts. It's rolling through the book of Acts. And what God is doing, God is doing a new thing, but we often don't understand the deep political, social, and existential density of saying that God is doing a new thing. This is everything, man. Hmm. This is everything on the table. Can you, um, <laughs> again, every, like every time you talk, man, I've, I just all this stuff pops in my mind. I can't capture everything. Um, I just, uh, you wrote in your commentary on, on, on Acts chapter two, which I love the title of your 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 section there is called the sound of intimacy with the speaking in, in yes. tongues. And uh, you say to learn a language re- requires submission to a people. And you, you have a just a great yeah. section just on the power of language and how it's fundamental to identity and culture and just humanness, you know, and, and uh, I, I don't know, I, you unpack that passage in ways that I, I haven't considered before. Um, but, you know, part of me... Um, I kind of get where the Jews are coming from here, the ones who are concerned, because you have this deep history of all the way from assimilation back in the Maccabean era and people who, you know, when they did kind of, um, you know, get Hellenized, it wasn't just like an ethnic assimilation. It very much, you know, all their kind of uh, moral scruples kind of went with them or whatever. So is that right to say that, that this that the Jewish kind of concern with Gentiles coming in was, I mean, it, well, I don't know. I, I'm kind of thinking out loud here. I mean, it was one kind of an ethnic takeover and I'm sure that alone would have riled people up, but they, they also had legitimate concerns about God's law being kind of watered down or not taken seriously, which is probably why there's so much almost emphasis on the law. Like later on, you have this kind of apostle Paul that sounds very different than Romans and Galatians almost, you know? And, um, you know, this, you're, you're, na- you're naming the dynamic that becomes so challenging, right? Because Paul, at the same time, Paul and all the disciples, at the same time, they're saying, we are fully faithful to yeah. the God of Israel. We're fully faithful to Torah. They're, at the same time, they are they are being led by the Spirit into the new that that is inexplicable immediately. Hmm. So Acts 10 and 11, um, Peter can't explain what God is doing. Remember in Acts 11, he doesn't go he doesn't go with a full full-throated theological explanation of what God's doing. Here's what Peter says in Acts 11. I didn't want to go, God made me. Yeah. <laughs> That's the this wasn't and my God gave, God gave them the spirit like God gave us. That's the explanation of Acts 11. That's the, expo- act, the explanation of Acts 11 of Acts 10 is I didn't want to go. God made me. God gave them a spirit like us in yeah. the story. And then <laughs> the passage says there was silence. And that's mm-hmm. it's an incredible passage. The text in that path is there was silence. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of silence, they, they praise God. So, okay, well, amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> but we understand that silence, that silence is pregnant. That silence is dense okay. because the silence is like, what, what, what the, <laughs> what? God did what? <laughs> Like us? Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that was I thought that was for us. What, what what's God doing? So so and and what we find in Acts is what we also find in in the rest of the New Testament. That is, it, it's not it's not perfectly laid out theologically speaking. Mm. How Israel is now new 
without being assimilated. How Gentiles are now a part of Israel while not being assimilated. Mm -hmm. Where, while both are actually in a different kind of assimilation. That is, they are entering into each other's stories. They are eating each other's food. I mean, that's the power of Acts 10. Yeah. And, and as I said in the commentary, on, on our, here where we sit, we don't read Acts 10 like so many indigenous peoples around the world read Acts 10. And what is that, Preston? So for so many peoples, prior to the, you know, prior to the reality of colonialism and so forth, for so many people, if you ate their animal, you were saying that you want to be a part of them because they, they associated who they were with that animal. They were the people of the salmon, the people of the buffalo, the people of the deer, the people of the caribou. So to eat the animal is not just, you know, a kind of culinary exp you know, exploration into a different food like we would think about it today. It's saying, I want you to be a part of me or you, or I want to be a part of you. That's why I'm eating your animal and learning how to eat your animal in the way that you eat it, right? So that reality of joining a people is densely laid out in Acts 10, but we can't, we really don't have the eyes for most of us in the West to read it that way, recognizing that what, what's coming down on that sheet it's not just a wide variety of foods. <laughs> What's coming on that sheet are people. <laughs> and here's the other thing that we often bypass. Some commentaries have picked this up, that Peter is at the very edge of what he could possibly conceive as the will of God. Hmm. Why? Because as, as a faithful, pious Jewish man, he has been shaped both in terms of his theological vision but also his aesthetic, his culinary taste, to shun what's on that sheet. So what do we get? We get, ugh. I mean, not just, oh, no, I don't eat this, but ugh, no, thank you. No, thank you. Ugh, nah. And it's that combination that we don't often hear when he says, uh, by no means, Lord. And as you know, in Greek, that's much stronger. No, I'm not going to do this. And... The passage, passage said, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. God is struggling with him to, and here's the other thing about that passage is so powerful. God drops the sheet at the height of Peter's hunger. Hmm. God drops the sheet when he's waiting to eat. So God wants to redirect his appetite hmm. toward that which he would not in any way, shape, or form want. Hmm. Now, the, the, the depth of that, the density of that runs right by us. Wow. We, we don't wow. see all of that happening in preparation for what? In preparation for you and I to be brought into the story of the gospel. Hmm. That, that's us on that sheet, right? Hmm. Those of us who are Gentile, that's yeah. us. Yeah. And it's not, a question, it's not a question of just accepting, right? You know, kind of like, you know, accepting a, a new nation at the UN. It's, it's much denser than that. It's coming to love, coming to appreciate. The word I use is join, coming to join. That's what's being put on the table. So when Peter yeah. arrives to the home of Cornelius, even though Cornelius is a God-fearer, as the, the old language was, and um, was one who obviously already understood in many, many ways the Jewish story, 
Peter's opening words capture the whole thing. Hmm. You all know that I am not supposed to be here. Hmm. And so he doesn't begin after that statement with, don't let me tell you something. He be, he be, after that statement, he, said, he asked the question of them, why am I here? Hello, friends. I want to invite you to come join us for our first ever Theology in the Raw Exiles in Babylon conference, March 31st to April 2nd. At this conference, we are going to be challenged to think like exiles about race, sexuality, gender, critical race theory, hell, transgender identities, climate change, creation, care, American politics, and what it means to love, love, love your Democratic and Republican neighbor as yourself. Different views will be presented. Everyone will be challenged to think critically, compassionately, and Christianly through all kinds of different topics. We've got loads of awesome, uh, awesome speakers that are going to be there. Thabiti Anuboile, Chris Date, Derwin Gray, uh, Ellie Bonilla, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, Evan Wickham, uh, John Tyson, Tony Scarcello, Sandy Richter, Kimi Katiti, Heather Scriba, Street Hymns, and many others will be joining us for the first ever Theology in the Raw conference. All the information is in the show notes, or you can just go to pressandsprinkle.com to register. And I would recommend registering sooner than later. Space is limited. You can come and join us in person in Boise, or you can stream it online. Again, PressonSprinkle.com for all the info. Why am I here? Hmm. That, uh, that, I'm we still, have to get our minds around. I'm still tripping over the food, the, the, what you said about indigenous people and, and the food. I mean, it may, there's, I forget exactly. I was trying to look it up, but in, I think it's in Acts 10 where it's all about food. Like, Lord, I've never eaten any unclean food. But then in the next chapter, all of a sudden, now we're talking about unclean people. It's almost like the food people correlation is super explicit. Like it's just right there on the text. It's not primarily about food. It's primarily about people, but you can't even separate the two. Do you think, I mean, is that that why we had the dietary laws in the Old Testament to begin with? It wasn't about not eating this rabbit or that rabbit or I, I don't even you know know the details but like it was more that these foods were associated with a a pagan people and in that time you know Israel is was told to separate from absolutely yeah absolutely and, and there's there's um good work on that but absolutely it's it's the connection of food to people connection of food to ritual uh-huh. connection of food to communion right uh-huh. that um so add all those three then it becomes the possibility of redirected, or, or in the case of Israel, misdirected loves, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is why the 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 um, all the words around eating, and in, in the Book of Acts, you notice that, that that the eating in the Book of Acts is very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So it ends that he's staying there eating with the Gentiles. He's there eating with them. Even even when um, they came to get him, there's already some transgressing. He's in the home of Simon the Tanner, right? So he's there's already um, something going on in this account that is transgressive. Hmm. So absolutely, wow. And we have to get our mind around what that means for the world that the spirit is trying to create, right? In the midst of a world of strife and division. Yeah. Even in other cultures today, I mean, to varying degrees, yeah, food means a lot more than than it typically does. Than it typically does in America. I remember I, I've I've got a relative who was a missionary in in, in France. So we're not even talking like a you know majority world country. Um, but it, he was he was with a really conservative organization. This is back in the late seventies, 
and uh, they had a no drinking mm-hmm. policy. <laughs> well, you, you try to get mm-hmm. invited over to a French person's home who was going to offer you a, probably the, their best wine because you're their guest, probably from a local vineyard, from a friend who's spent their life investing into this vineyard and say, oh, no, I'm sorry. I don't. I'm not going to drink your wine. Like, he saw it as such a barrier to the gospel. People were so offended. Like, why are you rejecting me? He's like, well, no, I just don't drink your wine. It's like, well, you're rejecting me. You know, like, so he ended up telling the organization, like, look, either I got to come home or I got to start drinking wine because this isn't going to work. So um, in other cultures, I've been, I've been, you know, like I'm sure like you travel the world and Nepal, same way. And other countries where, where food is such a, intrinsic part of the the culture the language the people it's all kind of wrapped up in the one um i'm just thinking of modern day kind of parallels uh, how how we can kind of maybe (laughs) in our attempts at peace and reconciliation you know prioritize food more and maybe we can get some more modern day application but i i I kind of want to switch over to um the the your first point about roman citizenship is is this I'm curious about how Paul uses his own citizenship. Cause I, mm-hmm. I'm so let me just form, formulate my question. He doesn't seem to make a big deal out of it until it, he can kind of throw it back in their faces. Or I'm thinking like Acts 16, like why did he just tell him right away? He was a Roman citizen. Is that, is, is he downplaying his citizenship or how, how should we understand Luke's portrayal of how Paul in particular views citizenship or are there other specific passages that can kind of flesh out your earlier point about the significance of Roman citizenship? Well, well, think about, think about what Paul is um, in the midst of from, from, you know, throughout the entire where he begins to show up with us, with Stephen, Paul is in the midst of a radical rethinking. Mm. We're seeing a radical rethinking of who he is and a radical rethinking of how one um, announces identity and how one announces alliance and allegiance. And so all of that is at stake. But, but I think we, we, run too, we run too quickly past what must have been an incredibly challenging and painful reality of Paul, that, that, that being to go places among your own people and to be seen as a threat. Preston, can you imagine you, you, you who have been, uh, you know, as he said later on, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, mm-hmm. you know, you know, one who was deeply committed to the way of a life in Israel, and then to be seen as threat, mm-hmm. you know, the jarring reality of that, and so citizenship becomes a really interesting thing, as as I say, in the commentary, all of a sudden now we have to we have to have a hyphen with the word citizen. We have to say disciple citizen. Hmm. And so um, and so to say disciple citizen or citizen disciple means that we are all, we've already created a, 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 a kind of a fracture of fissure in what citizenship can ever mean. So Paul's playfulness has to be understood in that wider reality of him trying to make sense now. Of being a disciple, at the sight of of a faithfulness that others are questioning, where he is simply seeing the uh, uh, the, the proper modulation of that faithfulness into more deeply, more intensely the God of Israel. 
So he, he's not he's not in that way, I think, trying to play with the um, his Roman citizenship. He's trying to figure out what any of it means, what mm. connection any of it means. And in point of fact, you know, at the very end of the book of Acts, I think this is one of the, to me, it's one of the most under-reflected on points in the whole book. So here he is, house arrest in Rome, right? Here he is. And the the Jewish community in Rome who had not really heard about him, they come to his house. And they said, you know, we haven't heard, we, you know, tell us what this stuff is going on. We haven't heard much about it. And so he starts to tell them about Jesus, and he starts to tell them about the resurrection and, you know, all, all the reality of him being Messiah and the, the, the hope and the promise of Israel. And the, the passage there, I think we don't recognize the, the richness of it. So, because we don't remember the context. So these are Jewish people in the heart of empire. They're in Rome, man, where Caesar is worshipped. And this dude is here talking about the, a new, you know, the reality of God may manifest in, in, in Jesus of Nazareth and the whole world will bow to him. And they're like, dude, do you know where you are? <laughs> are you kidding, right? You're not going to actually ask us to be saying this and believing this in Rome. I mean, we might as well all go get on a cross right now because we will all perish quickly if this gets out. And so, you know, as the pastor says, they give us, okay, thank you, Paul. We'll see you later. Maybe we'll come back. And, you know, this is where Paul is frustrated. They're frustrated. And Paul says that thing, you know, well, if you're not going to listen, I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles. And I think people misread that and say, okay, well, he's turned away from Israel. No, this is a moment of frustration. It's a moment of frustration hmm. that he's hoping that, that his people can see what he's saying. And they're frustrated because they're like, you don't seem to understand where you are. You're in Rome, trying to talk about, um, trying to talk about the savior of the world. The, 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 what are you talking about? You're in Rome, man. <laughs> so it's it's that dynamic that I, I don't think we understand that Paul is trying to articulate, trying to work it out. It's not all clear. It's not yeah. all clear. And this is what I appreciate yeah. about the, the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts is not giving us a completely worked out theology in anybody's mouth. Hmm. How could it be? It's giving us a theological vision in forming inside the new that God is doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when we get to Acts 28, that frustration is what we're seeing. But what we're also seeing, back to your question, what we're seeing is that, a, is that to be a disciple is now forever permanently altering what we might ever mean by citizen. Oh, wow. That, I mean, that... <laughs> And again, I'm holding back the floodgates of modern day application because um, I, I want to keep lingering in, in Acts for a bit. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> we, I guess we can state it generically. So you're saying the book of Acts would suggest or proclaim um, that when somebody becomes a disciple of Jesus, that can only interrupt how they view their national citizenship like if their if their national citizenship if their if their view of that remains untouched then there's something missing right. in their discipleship process absolutely absolutely there's no way if we follow the, the line of the book of acts and we don't have to you no know, we don't have to make acts the you know the um kind of permanent 
unchanging paradigm, but, but we see the trajectory that is inescapable. Yeah. That to be a disciple yeah. of Jesus, now no matter what you do, the hyphen is there. Mm. Citizen, disciple. And what does that mean? Now, what does that mean concretely? It means that God is pressing you to join others who are not necessarily citizens or a part of that nation. God is pressing you to be led by the Spirit to others, right? And so that this, that citizenship now has to be forever qualified, if you will, by another citizenship. The discipleship leads to a different citizenship, as we all know. My citizenship is in heaven. And this is obviously what will be said later by um, Paul and other New Testament writers, that we have, we have a citizenship in heaven. But yeah. what, what creates that? The, the fundamental theological antecedent to that is the disciple. I'm a disciple of this Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so my citizenship means that in a, in a sense, I mean, we can even say this strongly, that there is always already in me the reality of a traitor, mm -hmm. a traitor to that nation, a traitor to my people to the extent that they wish to be the ultimate determiner of my destiny hmm. and of the orientation of my life. Yeah, that can't yeah. be anymore. I, yeah, I can smile yeah. politely, <laughs> but I know in my heart, I'm sorry. You know, I'm a disciple of Jesus. At the end of the day, I'm a disciple of Jesus. <laughs> it's been a while since I read Kevin <laughs> Kevin Rowe's book, uh, World Upside Down. So I, I, I hope I'm summarizing it correctly. As I recall, and I, this, I'm bringing this up because it comes out so much in your commentary that one of the, it seems that one of the points of Luke here, who's writing Acts is to show that while this early Christian movement was subverting the very values of Rome and in, in so many places, I mean, just to say Jesus is Lord means right. Caesar is not. And to sit in Rome and say, there's another savior of the world is crucified and risen Jew, I mean, that these are outlandish claims, politically speaking. Um, yeah, so as yeah. much as they subverted the values of Rome, both in what they said, how they counter contradicted um, authority claims and how they lived their lives and how they, you know, on and on it goes, they still never like violated like a Roman law. Like they, they, they kept getting accused of breaking a law, but they couldn't find anything on them. Like they were actual like good citizens, sort of like, you know, is that, do you, is that a fair summary? And do you see that in the book of Acts to where you have this? Yeah. That they're not out violently revolting or even just revolting in a sense of breaking kind of just arbitrary laws. There's nothing to arrest them on, but they are very much subverting the values of the empire. Is that, is that seem accurate or? Yeah. I, I think that's it. But, but keep in mind, that so so often the the it is the perception of threat that is equal to the breaking of a law, right? If you are perceived as a threat to the yeah. well-being of empire, then uh, for all intents and purposes, you are already a lawbreaker because the very way your life is structured, and as we know, as things will continue forward in the history of Christianity, it's it's the that very direction of life. That that the wise one, the smart ones of the empire, are looking at them, saying, "Well, if this continues, <laughs> we're going to have a huge set of problems." If, now, right now, they're not doing nothing, but just imagine this uh. continuing. 
and it's it's that what's already present. That's what's already present in um, in the in the Book of Acts. Now it's it's interesting because as you know, when we come to those latter chapters and Paul starts to, as they say, go to court, it's pretty clear that at one level there are some who want to say this is just an internecine squabble among these 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 folks at the at the margins of the empire, these Jewish people. So I, I don't get involved with this. But at another level, um, they're aware that if this rises to the attention of the people in Rome, a lot of heads could turn because this this could be seen as fomenting precisely the kinds of ways of thinking mm. that undermine the deepest okay. theology, the deepest ideology of Rome. And that's where we have to always understand particular laws are not often what is the problem here. It's a way of life that mm-hmm. could undermine everything. Yeah. Well, so yeah, yeah. this. So think about the civil rights movement. I mean, in one ways, the, the the you know you could say that they were law-abiding folks mm-hmm. who um, were marching peacefully, but in another way, what you see is that they, they do want to challenge some laws, but it's the very direction that they're wanting to take society that so many people saw as a threat. They want to end segregation. They want to end, um, you know, separate but equal. They want to end a particular configuration of hierarchy that exist, existed well. So that becomes even more devastating than breaking a law or two. Yeah. That's, that's the whole ball of wax. Is that where the statement in Acts 17, my favorite statement, world upside down, you know, here come these, you know, rabble rousers and they're, they're turning the world upside down, you know, saying that there's another yeah. Lord, another, another Caesar, Jesus, I forget if it's Lord or Caesar there. Um, I think, oh, another King. Yeah. Anyway, right. um, is that, is that a pregnant statement? Like, is there, you think Luke is, there's just so much in, in, embedded in that state. I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm, it's kind of a rhetorical question because I think there is, but I would love to hear from you. If, if uh, I, I, have you, <laughs> I do, I do think. But what I think, as I read that, and I think this was so interesting, it, it's it's over, it's turning upside down a particular arrangement, right? Huh. An arrangement that has allowed Israel to exist in empire without being seen as threat. It's it's overturning a particular. Direction of, of 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 progress and of uplift and advancement, mm-hmm. all that's being overturned, right? Because you know how to how to go from being at the margins to being a Roman citizen to being someone in power to being someone mm-hmm. appreciated by Caesar, all of that is being overturned. Mm-hmm. What's also being overturned is the the other thing we've been talking about the the clear demarcation between Jew and Gentile. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, the separate worlds for the sake of sustaining Israel's identity. All of that is being overturned. And so, yeah, I I, I see that as as really the you know the whole matter. Yeah. And in, in point of fact, what 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 also is there? The fear. Yeah. The fear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, if to say that my world or our world, excuse me, is being overturned. Wow. Yeah. You're speaking, you're speaking some pretty thick fear, aren't you?
Hey friends, hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. And if you are enjoying this conversation and others like it, would you consider supporting the Theology in the Raw ministry by going to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to lots of different kinds of premium content like monthly Patreon only podcasts and blogs and Q&A sessions. Again, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw or all the info is in the show notes. You're speaking, you're speaking some pretty thick fear, aren't you? Wow. Well, this is a great segue to go to some modern-day applications. So a Christian sits down, reads the book of Acts, cover to cover, uh, with, with an awareness of a lot of things you've been talking about, and then they close, close their Bible and they go out and say, all right, I want to I do that. I want to I live this way. What, is that, what does that look like? And I guess I'm, I have a broad point of application and a, a more narrow one. The broad one is how should Christians in light of the book of Acts view their relationship to, let's just keep it to America, um, but it should be applicable to any kind of national citizenship. Like how should we think through our national identity? And more pri- more specifically, a more narrow one is how, how, how should we use the book of Acts or apply the book of Acts to current conversations about race? Um, uh, because there are so many, mm-hmm. you know, ethnic things happening in the book of Acts. Uh, well, what can we learn from the book of Acts and uh, how can we apply that to current conversations happening today? Yeah, I, I, these, are, these are great questions. I think the first thing that we have to do is invite Christians to actually read the memo that most of them never got. And what is that memo? That we were brought into the story of another people. Mm. That the book of Acts was not a question to us about whether we should accept Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is first a question to Israel if they will accept the new that God is doing, and that new is us, Hmm. so that we are not the point of the story. (laughs) (laughs) And and the only way we can see that ourselves as the point of the story is to first see that we were not the point of the story. Mm. I know that sounds that sounds contradictory, but you have to think about it this way. We are being brought into the story of another people so that to, to enter into the lives of others with humility, mm. with joy, in the grace of God's allowing us to enter in order to create the new should be a fundamental reality in the life of a Christian. Mm-hmm. But for all of us, we, you know, because of the way in which this thing was this thing was turned, um, distorted. Most of us imagine in the Book of Acts showing us that we are the the host, and others are coming into our world. It means it's the quick way of reading the Book of Acts as though the Book of Acts is about Gentiles. Hmm. And so we have to, the first thing we have to be be presented with in the Book of Acts and seeing the Book of Acts is this beautiful way of entering in that should be should mark our lives now this brings us right to the current moment mm-hmm. so if 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 the sign of the spirit in our world the sign of the spirit in our lives the sign of the spirit in the church is that the spirit is leading us to join others across border and boundary wow mm. all right we're, we're we're at the very beginning what it means to talk about a citizen disciple, which means that the way we understand boundary, the way we understand border, can't be tied 
to the logics of statecraft. We protect our borders. We maintain our boundaries. No, we follow the spirit. And the spirit always draws us to those who are different from us, who are beyond our borders and boundaries, especially those in need. Hmm. And this is, this is a fundamental part of what it means to be a citizen disciple, that while we are in a place, and we, as you said earlier, we respect the place and the laws of the place, but we recognize that as disciples, we are always reaching beyond to join, mm -hmm. to hold. This is, this is the beginning of then understanding what it means to be a global citizen, right? right? As a disciple of Jesus. What does that mean for us? It's, to use a big theological term, it's a pneumatological reality. It's a reality of the spirit. Yeah. That is to say, it's a reality of yielding to the spirit, of listening to what the spirit is saying. As I like to say, Preston, there's, you know, for, for Christians, what we have to recognize is that we should never go around saying that we don't, we, we're trying to figure out what the will of God is. That, that's never been the problem of a Christian. The problem of Christians is yielding to the Spirit of God to do the will of God. <laughs> That's always <laughs> our problem. Our problem is yielding to the Spirit. Yeah. We resist the Spirit. This is what makes uh, the Christian struggle what it is. It's the struggle to stop resisting the Spirit. And what does the Spirit want? We see yeah. in the book of Acts. To join you to people you would prefer not to be. So here's the reality of the book of Acts. In almost every chapter, here's what we know that there's somebody being asked to do what they don't want to do. Huh. <laughs> They're being asked to do what they don't want to do. And and what and what is it that God wants them to do? To go places and be with people they would prefer not to. From Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch yeah. to Peter. So over and over again. Paul having to go places. People telling Paul, you can't go there because, you know, Paul says, I have to go there. So it's the spirit leading and guiding. Now, that for me does bring us then to the problems we face with race and the problem we face with what's known as whiteness. Mm -hmm. And as I like to say, whiteness is not biology. Whiteness is not culture. Whiteness is not, um, you know, something that has descended from the heavens, not a part of creation. Whiteness is a way of being in the world and a way of perceiving the world at the same time. And whiteness is having the power to realize that way of being in the world. Whiteness is, in point of fact, uh, an aspiration toward a particular control of one's life. It came out of a particular moment. It came out of a particular reality of identity reconstruction from the 15th century forward. And it was shaped inside one. It came to life due to one crucial, I mean, there were other things, but the, the one crucial enzyme that brought it to life was what we've been talking about. And that is Christians who pushed Israel out the way in the way they read the scripture and imagined that they were the people of God having replaced Israel as the people of God. And so that God was doing what God was doing in the world only through, exclusively through them. Right? And that idea made its way into what we would now call every nation of what we would now call Europe, so that they imagined themselves in mind, soul, and body, especially body, mm -hmm. as the very center of God's story, the very center of God's plan. Mm -hmm. 
And it is out of that reality that whiteness forms. Hmm. But the story of the Book of Acts gives us something different. It gives us a different way to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. We are those who join others and in a fundamental way enter into their lives as an Acts 2 gives us, learning their language. A kind of reverse assimilation, if you will, Preston, mm. where, where we enter the lives of others as a way, not as a not as a missionary ploy, yeah. but we yeah. enter we enter the lives of others as a way to join, to become, so that inside a love of other people, we perform, we announce our love of Jesus. Mm. You hear what I just said? Mm. Inside the love of another people, we witness our love of Jesus. Mm. It's wow. the, those two loves that constitutes what it means to be a Christian. And it's those two loves that we need in order to challenge the deep structures of racial existence in the Western world. Ah, man, um, <laughs> you got another three hours? Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know how much say. I don't know how much your your uh, an hour of teaching from you is worth. But I'm getting my money's worth here. This is great. Um, I, I'm. You mentioned whiteness, and I know that's that's a. Uh, um, can be a volatile if not misunderstood term i well i, I would love your after whiteness your your i think your latest book right uh 2020 uh after whiteness and education and belonging it sounds like i haven't read that one yet um it sounds like you what you're touching on there is probably what is unpacked there quite a bit and just how we've gone about education in the west Could, do you want to give a little summary of that book and what you are saying in there? I'll do, I'll do it really quickly, but, but I do it really quickly because I know we're focused on the book of Acts here, yeah. but I'll do it really quickly. So yeah. in, in my little book, After Whiteness, which is written to everyone, not only people involved in theological education, but people interested in Western education and leadership in, in both church, academy, and the communities, the argument of that book is that all of Western education has been at the, 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 the goal of formation that has been the heart of Western education has been geared toward forming all of us into one particular image, mm. one image of the educated state. Mm. And that image is of a white, self-sufficient man who exercises beautifully three what I call dismal virtues, control, <laughs> possession, and mastery. Control, possession, and mastery. And that image has driven so much of the uh, curricular and pedagogical and learning energy of Western education and it has created such a problem. And what I argue in After Whiteness is that for those of us engaged in education at any level and those of us who are interested in the formation of people in any way, shape or form, in any vocation and as moral citizens, we need a different image. And the image I propose, excuse me, is Jesus and the crowd. Jesus and the mm. crowd, Preston, because that's an image that shows the possibility of gathering together, mm -hmm. people who would normally not want to be together, but they are there together because of this one. And so I asked the question, what would it mean to have as our ultimate goal 
of education, whether we're talking in terms of the education or Western education, what would it mean to have as the ultimate goal of our education to cultivate people who can cultivate belonging, mm-hmm. who can cultivate belonging across all the lines of difference so that people are together who would normally not be together, but they are there together because of the way you do your work. Mm. And so what we see, what, what we see in a quality education achieved is not a self, you know, not some uh, performance of a kind of white self-sufficient man who has control, possession, mastery or whatever it is, but someone who is able to gather. So lawyer, doctor, minister, dentist, plumber, teacher, musician, what they do is that they create not just community, they create communion. They create people who want to be together, who if it wasn't for them, they'd be at each other's throats. If it wasn't for them, they wouldn't be able to see each other. If it wasn't for them, they wouldn't imagine that they have this connection. You become a place of connection. Yeah. That's that's what the argument of the book is. Oh, that's good. Not, not, you're making me want to read. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you um, yeah. avoid or clarify? So like, the, the and yeah, I, um, the, there's just a phrase whiteness. How, how do you, av- well, do people say, wait a minute, you're indicting every single white person saying everyone's controlling, everyone wants to be a master. How do you, I mean, you kind of already said it that you're not, talking about right. that but this, but, this uh, is the most difficult thing we're facing today across the entire not only this country but especially within Christian community so so Preston for so long for so long so many people have never had to think about the racial formation of their life yeah now for so many people so for so many people of color they have, they, they have to think about it every day. And what, and what do I mean by that? The racial construction. So many people of color, whether we're talking about people of Asian descent, African descent, the, you know, uh, uh, Latinx folks. Well, what they all have to do, what we all have to do is to, we have to make this distinction between who we actually are, right? And the derogatory visions of our peoples, mm-hmm. right? So the stereotypes and the derogatory visions, and and what we realize that what those derogatory visions are is that there are little tiny slivers and pieces of things that are partially true, but wrapped up in all this garbage mm-hmm. is horrible. And so people have to pull out, pull out the little pieces that that are that speak to their history, stories, and so forth, and say, okay, it doesn't belong inside all that garbage. And so the, the, all, all our lives are working to, to clarify that distinction between who we are and this derogatory racial vision. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, we, we, can, we can say, okay, I, I can continue to call myself Latinx. I can continue to call myself black or Asian. But I know that, you know, it's not this. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what I want to think about myself in the specificity of my life freed from this because this is a mess mm-hmm. right yeah. so everybody everybody all people of color go through that process of yeah. doing it now but what would happen Preston if the, if this if this image was always positive what if it was always positive always looked always looked beautiful and in fact what if one's ancestors helped to create that positive image and then told their children and their children's children move into it move fully into it, 
don't don't try to think separately about it. I mean, yeah, yeah, we, we, you know, you're, you're part Irish, you're part Italian, you're part, but who cares about that? Here in America, you're white, and it's great. So if somebody comes along and says, friends, it's not great, and you need to start to pull who you are, who you are from that image, but it's been presented as great and fine and normal, then the minute someone says, no, it's not great, pull, what's going to happen? People are going to go, ow, no, ouch, ouch. <laughs> Oh, ow, no, no, you're attacking me. You're attacking me. You hate me. You, you think I'm horrible. I'm not horrible. I don't have slaves. My, my grandparents didn't have slaves. It's, why are you attacking me? No, I'm not attacking you. I'm trying to get you to see that there is a difference between who you should be in this world mm -hmm. in relationship to all of us who are not white and this image that so many people, including you, have climbed into that that has advantages <laughs> mm -hmm. and i'm asking you to walk pull away from that but why can't why can't i love my my whiteness just as much as you love your blackness or asianness i said no you, you're kind of missing the point here again <laughs> <laughs> I, i've been all my life in a process of pulling out those little pieces that are a part of my history my culture my reality without the massive derogatory jump that's there you haven't had to do any of that Mm -hmm. But now you need to. So what does this mean, Preston? It means so that when I say the word whiteness, for some people, they see no distinction between that, that word and who they are. Mm. Because they've been so fused together mm. that they can't imagine the possibility of even who they could be apart from that. But here's the tragedy, and here's the irony of it. There was a time in America, believe it or not, when nobody walking down the street would have called themselves white, they would have said, I'm Irish, I'm yeah. Italian, yeah. I'm German, I'm Flemish. But they were in the process of becoming white, mm -hmm. right? So it's that, it's that reality that we're caught in right now. And this is why so many Christians, so many Christians are engaged in what I consider absolutely counterproductive work. That is, they're trying to defend something that they have no idea what they're defending. You're defending a identity reconstruction, hmm. not an identity. You're defending an identity reconstruction in which your ancestors, your great-grandparents, your grandparents climbed into when they came from the old world of Europe in order to be accepted and acceptable. And so what has to happen is that you have to see your Christianity in league with my Christianity, in league with many Latinx people's Christianity, with many indigenous people's Christianity, with many um, Asian people's Christianity, as trying to articulate who we are apart from a big old racial derogatory vision that is not us, but we're trying to make sense of who we are given that, that reality. That, so that, that's what's yeah. going on. That's a helpful explanation. I appreciate that. Um, would it um it would always help when people ask questions about terms and say what do you mean by that rather than flipping out and assuming they know exactly what you mean but would it would that idea apply to any kind of country or culture that has a dominant um 
people group with a history of mastery and oppression. Not that every single individual is equally involved, but I'm, I'm thinking of Rwanda with the Hutus and Tutsis. It's not an exact parallel, but I mean, any kind of country where there has been a dominant um, group or is it unique? Like, could you apply the concept of whiteness as you describe it to some, somewhere else in a, in a different country? Or is it really unique to the American experience? It's not, it's not unique to the American experience. What it is is that we have to understand that whiteness forms in a particular moment. Uh-huh. And it travels. It travels. It spreads. What does it travel and spread on? It travels and spreads on the transatlantic slave trade. It travels and spreads on transatlantic trade itself and the markets. So it travels wherever the West becomes a place outside the West. That is to say, in all the places that were formerly formerly sites of colonial uh, expansion and domination, all the places where people assimilated. So it travels everywhere. And what, what, what what am I talking about? What travels? What travels is that journey into racial identity. So here's what we gotta remember. What, what made race so insidiously powerful is that it stole from Christianity its comprehensive power of identity. What do I mean by that? I'm going to make sure your, your listeners understand this. So think about this this way. So when Christians traveled around the world, when missionaries went any place, they had a designation that could fit Everyone. What was that designation? Sinner <laughs> and saved. Sinner and saint. Sinner and saved. Redeemed, redeemed and unredeemed. Reprobate and elect. They, they have a language that could fit any people. Now, here's what, here's what your listeners have to understand. Race stole, the the racial formation stole that power, took that very power. So that means when the missionaries went to a place with vastly different peoples, I mean, vastly different peoples, different language, different different systems of, of commerce, everything different. They looked at them and said, black. African. Wait, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm Wolof. No, 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 no. Black African. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm Zulu. No, no. Black yeah. African. No, I'm not. No, it doesn't. Huh. It will fit. And at the same moment, when they came, that is, when the Europeans came, Irish, no. Huh. German, no. Chinese, no. White. And then. You could fit everybody in between. Um, not quite white, almost white. Mm-hmm. Uh, more, more toward black. So it it wasn't. It it was a way to fit people into mm. yeah. a form of identity that they, in time, were forced to reconcile themselves with. Now they may still have called themselves I'm Igbo. They may still call I'm a Khan. They may still have called themselves that. But in terms of the global reality emerging, they were just going to be seen inside that racial right, vision. Right, yeah. And so, so if they got on a ship and came to the United States, or they came to England, or they came to Australia, or if they came to Canada, at a certain point, 
I don't care what they were from where they were. They're, they're black or Indian or Asian. I mean, that's what they are. Yeah. And so however you want to define yourself, I've already given you, I've already given everybody the hermeneutical key to interpret yeah. who you are. So without so, you ever opening <laughs> What's that? <laughs> without you ever opening your mouth and to say a word about it. So that so so there is that oppressive colonizing kind of um uh, movement to the what you're saying, whiteness. It's not just a majority and minority context. It is very much the 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 majority imposing artificial socially constructed categories upon somebody else to organize society in a way yeah. that is that the minority yes. never even has a contribution to. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. I'm still trying to think of other parallel. Like would it, would it, as you were speaking, but maybe this wouldn't work like, um, in Egypt, you know, you have obviously a Muslim dominated, uh, culture, but you also have a minority Coptic Christian, maybe 10% of the population. Would that be similar? Could we map whiteness onto that context and call it Islamicness or something? Or, or, or is that no, still not no, quite no. the same? Or? No, no, no. Yeah, see, you want you want to hold on to the historical specificity and, in some ways, the uniqueness of it. Now, okay. that's not to say that people didn't have designations for other people, like the old Greek, sure. the Greek old barbar barbarians were anybody, right? Barbarians right. were anybody who <laughs> outside. But so 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 the the naming and labeling is not what's new. That's not what's new. What's new is the use of Christianity's deepest logics huh. to make it work. That's what's new. Christianity being used yeah. to make this happen. And that that's where, for, for we who are Christian, as I like to say, well, we have to understand that modern racial thinking has a Christian yeah. architecture. Yeah. And modern Christianity, modern Christianity has a racial architecture and we have to understand that those two things exist for us right now yeah modern christian is a racial architecture and modern racial reasoning has a christian architecture huh. wow. that's why it's so difficult wow. for people to get their minds around it because unless you see how those two things weave inside of each other yeah. you will really struggle trying to get your mind around what's going on and wind up defending but you really shouldn't defend. <laughs> I just recently I had I mean, my friend uh, Rasul Berry on the podcast, and he was basically he went at a, a deep dive just in what you're talking about the the how, mm -hmm. how Christianity has been so intertwined in this from many many centuries ago, and Jamar Tisby and others have, mm -hmm. have written on it. But um, man, this is super helpful. I've taken you over an hour. Can we uh, just a couple more minutes aside from everything we're talking about? Um, what do you like to do for fun when I, you're not? Uh, I, got I got two minutes, so I'll give take you phone because I got to go to. I, unfortunately, I have another meeting, but yeah. here, here, here's what's going on. <laughs> I am um, what I do for fun is um, I'm a I'm an avid jazz fan. Oh. and so I, I listen to jazz, but I also I, I'm I'm also a closet tenor tenor saxophonist, soprano saxophone player. So wow, I, I, I play at home and my poor wife. You have to pray for my wife. Her name is Joanne. Keep praying because <laughs> she, I inflict I inflict my terrible playing on her yeah. most days. I'm in the Are you close up to the house and she's upstairs praying. Stop. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Are you a Coltr Coltrane fan? Coltrane? Oh, I'm a 
I'm a fan of every of uh, the the list of who I'm a fan a boy fan of is is Legion. Okay, yeah. So um, coach at all, but um, yeah. But yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm an avid I'm an avid musician, and of course, as I, as you mentioned when we first began, I, I love poetry. So I, I'm, I read a lot of poetry. I'm, in fact, I'm reading now my colleague here at Yale, Louise Gluck's work, and um, I had not read much of her work. Um, before the pandemic, but I started reading it in the pandemic, and it's just been such a such a blessing to me. Wow. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Jennings. Um, my can't, pleasure. My I pleasure. recommend your pleasure. stuff, and I'll uh, post some links below for yeah more information. So, yeah, you got to rush off to a meeting. Really enjoyed the conversation, brother. All right, my friend. All right. Take Listen, care. Take care. <laughs> you too. <laughs>